0: The poet Lord Byron once wrote, Truth is always strange, stranger than fiction, an opinion which was never more true than in the baffling and to this day inexplicable case of Jeff the Talking Mongoose. This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the other realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. Perched upon a treeless 45-acre plot of land, 725 feet above sea level, on the west coast of the Isle of Man, Dorley's Cashin was a bleak, grey, two-story house, its 30-inch-thick walls built of slate slabs covered in concrete. Its few narrow windows permanently sealed against the almost daily onslaught of the lashing winds and pelting rain which rise up from the Irish Sea. Inside, the walls were lined with matchboard panelling, which provided protection from drafts. A continuous open space, a few inches wide, separated the interior panelling and the outer walls throughout the house. The house had neither electricity, telephone, nor radio. The nearest neighbor lived over a mile away, and the nearest road suitable for automobile traffic was four miles away when James T. Irving bought Dorley's cash-in and relocated to the house with his wife Margaret and his young daughter Vorey. Formerly the European agent for a Canadian piano company, James Irving's occupation had become an early casualty of the First World War, and upon moving to Dorlish Cashin, he hoped to provide for his family as a farmer. It was a hard, scrabble life. With only four inches of cultivatable soil above the farm's rocky surface, the Irvings struggled to make do by raising sheep, goats, geese, chickens, and ducks, and by snaring rabbits, which could be sold to their neighbors. All seemed normal enough until one September night in the year 1931, when, as James later carefully recorded in his diaries and letters, he heard a noise that seemed to come from behind the matchboard partition in the parlor, It lasted some time, then ceased. I thought we had mice, he later told the renowned psychoanalyst and parapsychological researcher Dr. Nandor Fodor. The following day, I opened up the ceiling and found a little Indian wooden carving, which I recognized as my own. How it got into the attic, I cannot tell. When it was dropped, It produced the same type of sound as we heard the night before. Soon the family began to hear other sounds issuing from behind the paneling. Its first sounds were those of an animal nature, James wrote in a letter to the famed ghost hunter Harry Price. And it used to keep us awake at night for a long time, as sleep was not possible. It occurred to me that if it could make these weird noises, why not others? And I proceeded to give imitations of the various calls domestic and other creatures make in the country. And I named these creatures after every individual call. In a few days' time, one had only to name the particular animal or bird, and instantly, always without error, it gave the correct call. My daughter then tried it with nursery rhymes, and no trouble was experienced in having them repeated. The voice is quite two octaves above any human voice, clear and distinct. But lately it can and does come down to the range of the human voice. It is not a prisoner, and I have no control whatever over its movements, and I can never tell whether it is in or not. It announces its presence by calling either myself or my wife by our Christian names. It apparently can see in the dark and describe the movements of my hand. Its hearing powers are phenomenal. It is no use whispering. It detects a whisper 15 to 20 feet away, tells you what you are whispering, and repeats exactly what one has said. The animal in question has been seen by myself and daughter of 14 in one of the two bedrooms of my house on several occasions in the month of October last. My daughter has on two occasions in January 1932 seen its tail only in the small back kitchen in a hole in the wall. My wife has seen it on one occasion only in October. The color is yellow, not too pronounced after the ferret. The tail is long and bushy and tinged with brown. In size, it is about the length of a three parts grown rat in the body without the tail. It can and does pass through a hole of about one and a half inches diameter. I personally am strongly inclined to view that it is a hybrid between a stout and a ferret. The bushy tail is not that of a stout, and the size certainly half that of the ferrets I have examined. In only a few weeks, it became capable of carrying on normal conversation, and it was not long before the Irvings and their mysterious house developed a friendly if not always easy, relationship. He pestered the family with an unending stream of questions. Just one more question, Jim, he would insist. Then I will let you go to sleep. At first they called the creature Jack, but over time they began to call it Jeff. The creature said, yes, I like that name. And so Jeff it was to be. At first, Jeff attempted to impress the Irvings by stating, I am a ghost in the form of a weasel, and I shall haunt you with weird noises and clanking chains. If you are kind to me, I will bring you good luck. If you are not kind, I shall kill your poultry. I can get them wherever you put them. I am not evil. I could be if I wanted. You don't know what damage or harm I could do if I were roused. I could kill you all if I like, but I won't. On other occasions, his claims became even more grandiose. I know who I am, but I shan't tell you, he boasted. Thou wilt never know what I am. I am a freak. I have hands and I have feet. And if you saw me, you'd faint. You'd be petrified, mummified, turned into stone or a pillar of salt. I can split the atom. I am the fifth dimension. I am the eighth wonder of the world. Later, Jeff claimed to be merely a mongoose. As he put it, I am a little extra, extra clever mongoose. I am a marsh mongoose. I was born near Delhi, India on June seventh, 1852. I was brought to England from Egypt by a man named Holland. When I was in India, I lived with a tall man who wore a green turban on his head. Then I lived with a deformed man, a hunchback. While the reference to the hunchback was probably an example of Jeff's love of dramatic and shocking hyperbole, it was true that a farmer living near Dorlish Cashin had, in 1914, imported and turned loose mongooses in the area in the hope of eliminating problematic rabbits, and it is possible that Jeff descended from these mongooses jeff's claim to have been born in 1852 however would have made him eighty years old that jeff was an animal of some kind seems beyond doubt although he was in many ways shy and took great pains not to be seen he allowed the irvings to touch his three fingers and thumb which were short yellow and sported curved nails On one occasion, he let Mrs. Irving pet his fur and cautiously insert her finger into his mouth. My long finger seemed to fill Jeff's mouth, she told Dr. Fodor. His teeth were tiny and sharp. He drew a little blood from my finger. I was indignant. I told him, I don't want any blood poisoning here. He answered, go and put ointment on it. His mouth was about an inch wide. Jeff seemed to be conversant in Spanish, Russian, Manx, Hindustani, and Hebrew. But whether he actually understood these languages or was merely mimicking phrases he had overheard in his travels about the island never became clear. He loved to sing. Favorite songs, including Carolina Moon, the Isle of Capri, and a racy parody of Home on the Range, which he had learned by listening to men at the bus depot. Jeff seemed to have incredible eyesight and to be able to read. Peering through a crack in the matchboard paneling, he would accurately call out from his hiding place the name of whatever book or newspaper a member of the household might be reading. He claimed to have learned to read by sitting on the window sill of a school or observing lessons from a nearby tree. It was in the same manner that he claimed to have learned songs and the tonic musical scale. A bond gradually developed between Jeff and the Irvings, who would leave cookies, stewed bilberries, chocolates, bananas, potato pie, bread sausage and uncooked bacon for him. Jeff could be somewhat picky, however, in his food preferences. Although he was particularly fond of cookies, he refused to eat unsweetened tea cookies. You can keep them, he complained. I don't like them. In return, Jeff herded livestock, which had gone astray back home, and killed rabbits the family could choose to either eat themselves or sell in town. At one point, he killed so many rabbits that the ecological balance of the area appeared threatened. He also entertained the family with gossip gathered in the course of his frequent travels about the island, gossip which invariably proved to be correct. As word of Jeff spread through the community and its inhabitants learned of his penchant for collecting gossip, strong measures against his eavesdropping were attempted. As a favorite way for Jeff to learn town gossip was for him to hang on the undercarriage of buses, a mechanic at the bus depot at Peel the nearest town, rigged an electrically charged contact plate under one of the buses in order to electrocute Jeff when he attempted to catch a ride. Although he didn't know which bus had been booby-tracked, James Irving learned of the plan and warned Jeff. Oh, I know all about it, said Jeff. It's under bus 81. When James investigated further, he found that Jeff was correct. Jeff also stole sandwiches from bus passengers and the bus depot's waiting room. When Dr. Fodor later investigated the incidents, the bus mechanic admitted that his attempt to electrocute Jeff had been a complete failure. It did not work, he said, nor the wire cage which I placed baited under the waiting room to prevent the stealing of sandwiches. Mr. Irving told me where the electric trap was fixed. He said that Jeff knew all about it. This animal, or whatever it is, knows a darn sight too much. He seems to hear what we talk in the bus shed behind closed doors in the early morning hours when no one is about. Moreover, Mr. Irving gave me a perfect description of the inside of my house. He never came to see me, and I have never been to Dorlish Cashin. He said Jeff told him. It's damn strange. Jeff was also extremely protective of the Irvings. He was known to follow Voiré to school, always staying just out of sight and ready to attack anyone who might stop her or talk to her. One day... He told James of hearing a boy call Worry, the Dolby spook, adding, I hope she misses the bus. I threw a stone at him, Jeff bragged, whereupon he wheeled about and shouted at another boy, Stop that, Stinky! Upon investigating the incident, James learned that one of the boys was indeed nicknamed Stinky. When Jeff learned that a visitor who had heard Jeff talk told a neighbor that he thought Voiré was somehow responsible for what he had heard, Jeff threatened, I'll kill his turkeys. Six months later, James met the daughter of this man. She told him that they had given up raising poultry, as their turkeys and ducks had one day all mysteriously disappeared. When James asked Jeff about this, Jeff proudly boasted, I killed the turkeys, and I killed four ducklings. On the other hand, Jeff could often become annoyingly impatient, screaming with diabolical laughter, or banging on the walls when he wanted attention, with such force as to send picture frames swinging about violently. He would frequently call out, hey jim what about some grubbo i'm hungry he could also be quite rude often employing an impressive arsenal of swear words when visitors of whom he disapproved appeared at the house jeff would scream go away clear to hell we don't want you here when he one day discovered james reading the bible jeff called out hey maggie Look at the pious old atheist reading the Bible. On another occasion, he called James a heathen and an infidel. Once, when James was reading, Jeff shouted, Read it out, you fat-headed gnome! When Jeff became upset over something he overheard Margaret say while in bed one evening, Jeff screamed from his hiding place between the walls, Nuts! Put a sock in it! Chew Coke! On another occasion, he called her Maggie the Witch Woman, the Zulu Woman, the Honolulu Woman. He was even known to insult the conditions of the house he shared with the Irvings, bragging, I've been to nicer homes than this. Carpets, piano, satin covers on polished tables. I'm going back there. Ha ha ha! He was, however, not serious about leaving Dorley's Cashin. This is my home, he confided in a moment of reflection. It suits me. In actual fact, he became upset whenever the Irvings suggested they might move away and claimed he would follow them wherever they might flee. I am a ghost in the form of a weasel, he threatened, and I will haunt you. The story of the talking mongoose quickly became worldwide news, with accounts appearing in newspapers as far away as Hong Kong. Although the Irvings were accused of creating and perpetrating a hoax, no motive for having done so was ever discovered. It could not have been financial. When an American theatrical producer offered the Irvings $50,000 for the right to exhibit Jeff, the perpetually financially strapped family flatly refused to entertain the offer. While it was often claimed that the 14-year-old old Fourier was a skilled ventriloquist, Careful investigations by Nandor Fodor and associates of Harry Price completely eliminated such a possibility. As Dr. Fodor put it, The charge of ventriloquism is best answered by the fact that Jeff has been heard when each member of the family has alternately been eliminated. It is sufficient to spend a day at Dorlish Cashin to know that under their conditions of living, it would be impossible to carry on a ventriloquial imposition over a period of years. As for the suggestion that Jeff was a ghost, Dr. Fodor concluded, Jeff is not a ghost. He is a material being of some sort since he eats, drinks, kills rabbits, Throws objects, and proves his objective existence in scores of ways. Traditional ghosts do not care to do any of these things. Furthermore, Jeff's body was touched, and he bit Mrs. Irving's finger and drew blood. By all standards of evidence in psychical research, Jeff is not a ghost. As Jeff was clearly flesh and blood... And as Jeff could not pass through closed doors, Dr. Fodor also rejected the supposition that Jeff was some kind of elemental spirit. And although Jeff was known to throw objects and cause substantial noises, Dr. Fodor also ruled out his being some kind of poltergeist. Strangely, None of the investigators ever considered the possibility of Jeff being an animal possessed by a ghost or other, perhaps presently unknown, kind of supernatural entity. Following James Irving's death in 1945, Margaret and Vorey Irving moved away. They sold Dorley's cash-in at a loss, owing to the fact that the property was believed to be haunted. Jeff was never seen or heard from again. Eventually, the house at Dorlish Cashin was demolished. Today, almost no trace of it remains. In 1970, a reporter for Fate magazine managed to locate Vori, who was then residing in England. She was reluctant to talk about the case but she denied in no uncertain terms that she had produced Jeff's voice through ventriloquism. Believe me, she declared, if I were that good, I would jolly well be making money from it now. She blamed Jeff for disappointments in her life. Jeff was very detrimental to my life, she complained. We were snubbed. The other children used to call me the spook. I had to leave the Isle of Man and have to work out where people have never heard the story about it. Jeff has even kept me from getting married. How can I tell about it to a family of my future husband? She remained firm to the end in the truth of all that had occurred at Dorlish Cashing. When asked if Jeff was a mongoose, she answered, I don't know. I know he was a small animal about nine inches to a foot long. I know that he talked to us from the wainscoting. His voice was very high-pitched. He swore a lot. At first he talked to me more than anyone. We carried on regular conversations. It was not a hoax, and I wish it had never happened. If my mother and I had had our way, we never would have told anybody about it. But father was sort of wrapped up in it. It was such a wonderful phenomenon that he just had to tell people about it. Yes, there was a little animal who talked and did all those other things, she stated, without equivocation. He said he was a mongoose and we should call him Jeff. But I do wish he had let us alone. Vori died in 2005. So what exactly was Jeff? We will probably never know. As for me, I tend to believe that Jeff was exactly what he said he was. Nothing more and nothing less than a little extra, extra clever mongoose. This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from The Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland. And by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world. And Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Wind Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon.